Well, Happy New Year again on behalf of everyone here at Grace Chapel. Uh, there have been a lot of wonderful things that have happened in, uh, throughout 2015. Uh, we're really grateful to enter into this new year with uh, all these different new friends uh, and people gathering at our respective campuses. Uh, we're really grateful for all those who are watching us live online through our website and through our YouTube channel. And we're also grateful for our new partnerships. Uh, we want to give a special shout out uh, to our partnership up in Amherst, uh, New Hampshire, Christ Church. Uh, really grateful that you're a part of this. Uh, Pastor Brian, I know, is, is up there hosting and worshiping with you. And we hope you take good care of him and you get to, get to meet him um, late after the service. Uh, but many uh, new faces uh, here. Uh, and so I, I feel the need to introduce myself. I'm Tim Galley. I serve as the pastor of Community Life here. And I am genuinely excited to begin this new 2016 year and also this new sermon series that we're calling, Really? People Actually Believe This Stuff. Now we're told that we have 70,000 thoughts a day. Really? That means, we, if you think of it this way, there's 86,400 86, seconds in a day. That means we have about a thought a second. Now that felt a little bit high to me. So I decided that I would count my own thoughts this week. <laughs> I mean, it's only neuroscience. So I, 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 for day one, I counted about 65,000 thoughts, just, just a hair under what they, what they, what they said. Um, on, on day two, I had, I'd counted over 150,000 thoughts because I was caffeinated and I'd seen the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> on day three, I counted 18 thoughts. It was a really tough day, my head hurt and all that. On day four, I, I, got, I just got to the point where I'm just driving myself crazy on what constitutes a thought. Is this a thought? Is this a thought? Is this a thought? And I just gave up after that. I did do a good bit of Googling and uh, the, the other form of research um, that, that, that I'm, I'm good at. Um, and some studies have indicated that we have 50,000 thoughts a day. Some say 20,000 thoughts. And I'm going to use the number 20,000 thoughts because, you know, it's a little bit conservative but it's also easier to multiply. So we have about 20 thoughts a minute, okay? By Friday, we'll have had over 100,000 thoughts. By the end of this month, we'll have had over half a million thoughts, 620,000 thoughts. And by the end of this year, by the end of 2016, we'll have had, excuse me, nearly seven and a half million thoughts. What will we have thought about? Well, if 2016 is anything like 2015, we'll have thought about the things that matter most to us. We'll have thought about our family, we'll have thought about our friends, we'll have thought about our dreams, we'll have thought about our goals, we'll have thought about our health, we'll have thought about things that bring us joy. We'll also have thought about the things that bring us pain, our, our hurts, our challenges, what to do about them. We'll have thought about the issues facing us as a society and as a world. We'll be thinking about things like the election, We'll be thinking about all sorts of things, like entertainment and sports and all the things from the most trivial to the most sacred. That's probably what we'll have thought about. Now, perhaps this is why we change our mind a lot. Maybe this is why we sometimes don't know what we actually think on a matter. Maybe this is why we experience confusion. Maybe that those indecisive moments are our brain's way of trying to reconcile all the thousands of thoughts that we have going on right now. And perhaps this is why when it comes to matters of faith, that we also experience doubt, and we feel that tension, and we feel that paradox. We say things like, I believe this, but I'm not so sure about that. Or, 
I don't want to believe like you believe. Don't tell me what to believe. I'm, I'm, I'm working on this over here. And then the other question, is this really what I believe? Now, this new sermon series really is first for the skeptic and for those who doubt and for those who are unsure. It's for agnostics and atheists and also for Christians of all types. Christians who may know that they love Jesus, but they are unsure about other aspects concerning their faith. Many of us, including myself, still have to remind ourselves of Paul's words that the just shall live by faith. Oddly, my doubt and faith and doubt and faith struggle and cycle took more shape the more I read about Jesus and the more seriously that I took my faith. And I remember one of the passages that I remember thinking quite a lot about was when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? I couldn't help but wonder if I was there, what would I have said? I want to read to you this passage in Mark 8. It's brief, but it reads, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am, he asked. Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, it's an odd question to ask in some ways. I mean, is Jesus struggling with his self-esteem? Is he trying to take a popularity poll? Is he rethinking his Messiah strategy? Like, why ask this question? Well, here, as, as we read in the book of Mark, Jesus and his disciples are, you know, walking around Galilee, and after the, the feeding of 4,000 people and the healing of a blind man, and, and as he's making, way, he's make, making his way to Jerusalem, he stops and asks, who do people say that I am? And it's odd. I mean, have you ever asked this question? I dare you to go into work or into school tomorrow and put on your best Jesus voice and your best Jesus face and say, who do people say that I am? <laughs> right? If you work in a place like mine, they're just going to tell you that you're strange. <laughs> I don't know. It's strange. Huh? But as, as we read, the disciples, you know, they, they, they give a number of different answers. And, the, and they're wrong answers. Because it's a hard question to get right. Who do people say that I am? It's almost as if Jesus needs to clear the awkwardness. It's almost like he's saying, hey, fellas, I, I, I kind of already know what you think of me, but do you know what you think of me? We've done a lot of interesting things lately. You, you've seen me now heal people, bring people back to life, feed scores and thousands of people. You've heard these, you know, these great moral teachings that have really drawn in people who are not religious and also offend those who are really religious. So there's probably a lot of different opinions out there about me. What are they saying and what are you thinking? What are you saying? Here, Jesus becomes much more likable for me. But as soon as Jesus becomes likable, soon after, he almost always becomes confusing. Soon, Jesus is going to say things like, the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and die. And then Peter, he's going to be called Satan, and he's called Satan not after he critiques or attacks Jesus, but after he tries to encourage and support Jesus. Like, no, this, none of this is going to happen to you. And Jesus is going to say, no, get behind me, Satan. In the next chapter, Jesus is going to be transfigured, and he's going to hear, a, there's going to be this glorification moment, and there's going to be a voice from heaven, and you're, as you're reading along, you're thinking to yourself, how is this guy going to get arrested and get caught by the Roman guards? It seems that this guy would be able to, to dodge that, but instead, 
It looks like he's heading to Jerusalem to pick a fight. I don't understand that. Why? Really? And all these questions surface, and the questions that we've heard before, and that, that questions that are some of me, maybe some of our friends have raised, they also surface. And what, what we really want is to know that we're not being naive or intellectually lazy here. So we seek answers, we want clarity, we want facts, we want validity. We refer to this all as intellectual integrity. Maybe you came to a Christmas Eve service or attended a different church and uh, you stared at the wall behind the preacher and the musicians as you weren't really connecting with all of this. I want you to know I've had that experience too. Many Christians, even many here, have had that experience as well. Uh, you, You might have thought this is a really nice story Uh, But I'm not really sure it's true. And how can we know what is true? I mean, today we're going to be watching a football game that is going to to have high-definition cameras and instant replays and a team of officials, and they're still not going to get the calls right on the field, right? (laughs) Today we have satellites and smartphones and, and scores of reporters, and there's still so much we don't know about what is happening in our world, what is happening throughout our society, what is happening on a day-to-day basis. How can we know about something that happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and in Jerusalem? Is this stuff true, or is it just a really great legend? Now, I was raised in a really wonderful Christian home, and, and I do not have a story where my, my parents and my family were hypocritical and, and angry and and, and, you know, all, all these terrible things to me. Um, my story was that my, my, my family and my church and the people that I worshiped with, they seemed to have a different type of connection about God than I did. And so I would always go to church with people who were having this amazing experience about what was happening in the service. Oh my goodness, I just love that song. Oh my goodness, it would come out of the service like, oh, I just got so much out of that. And I didn't. And I was at the same place and I thought I was trying. Now, for the sake of intellectual integrity, I was much more interested in fast cars and girls than I was about Jesus. But when I thought about Jesus, I really did struggle with, 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 with all these doubts and, and all this confusion about him. I struggled with a lot of different doubts over my teenage and early college years. And like, like many others, I, I, I was struggling with what God had for me. And as time was going on, I was actually sensing the call, a call to go into the ministry but I had not quite satisfied all these questions. And so I would begin a lot of my prayers with, God, are are you really leading me in this direction? Because there's still a whole lot of things I'm just not really sure about. There's still a whole lot of things that like, I'm not sure, so I don't want to say certain things. Maybe you can relate to that. I mean, we have these 20,000 thoughts a day at least, and we're still trying to find places for all of them. Well, one day I walked into one of my theology classes with a professor named Dr. Gary Habermas, and who on that day became a really important voice to me. He acknowledged that everyone had some form of doubt at some time or another, and I cynically thought to myself, oh, here we go. Here's another theology professor, another preacher that is going to say that we have doubts, but then later he's going to shame me or bully me into believing. I tuned back in to hear Dr. Habermas say, There is at least three different types of doubt. It's probably more complicated than that, but just to summarize, here's three. And I I wrote these these doubts down for you. First is intellectual doubt. The doubts that ask if these beliefs are sufficiently grounded with historicity and reason. And that's what this message is about, the intellectual doubt. The second is emotional doubt. 
The way that we feel about this subject or claim, most of these begin with the questions of what if or why. And then the third is the volitional doubt. That is concerned with the will, motivation, personal desire. It asks, can I really believe this? And as for our purposes this morning, we'll define doubt as the lack of certainty about the truthfulness of Christianity or of one's own faith. Lack of certainty. Now, learning about faith and doubt really became a very helpful thing for me. Instead of feeling that I had to hide them or from them, I instead was allowing myself to enter into these moments of doubt and to examine them and to deconstruct them and reconstruct. And from here, it was a learning process and a growth process. And this set me on a course that would change my life. Now, I'll be the first to admit, doubt works differently for everyone. But doubting and then examining them, they can really lead to really great things. So to be clear, my, my goal today is not to get you to doubt more, but to allow you to, to encourage you to recognize and confront your doubts so that you can believe more. No one wants to be naive. No one wants to commit their life to something that just isn't true. And one of the arguments and accusations against Christianity is that this stuff is made up, it's legendary, it's just not true, and all this has just gotten out of hand. We hear that from a lot of different places in our society today, and one of which, uh, a person you might be familiar with, his name is Bill Maher. Now, Bill Maher is a popular comedian and author and talk show host on HBO, and he identifies himself as an atheist. A few years ago, he had made this documentary, or he called it a mockumentary, uh, called Religious, where he went around the country and, and interviewed people and interviewed, um, you know, maybe some questionable type of, you know, televangelist types, um, and also some very sincere people. And his case was that religion is for the naive, the superstitious, uh, or for the shady uh, that we're trying to exploit others. And then towards the end of the movie, he tried to make the case that religion is actually bad for the world. Now, throughout the movie, he conducts a series of interviews with those who identify themselves as Christians. And he always wants to point like kind of like the cracks and, 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 uh, and, and the spaces exposing them as either ignorant or naive. And there's always like this moment where he looks into this camera and kind of rolls his eyes and says silently, really, see, see what people are saying about what they believe? Now, in one scene, Bill, Bill Maher tries to make the case that, uh, that, that Christianity is a plagiarized religion from other ancient Near East myths. And so he says, take, for example, uh, the comparison between the Egyptian god Horus and Jesus, okay? Now, Horus is one of the most popular deities in ancient Egyptian religion. Uh, he was worshipped as the god of the sky or the god of kings, and he's often depicted with having a head of a falcon over the body of a man. And in the documentary, there's this moment uh, where Mars sarcastically says uh, this bit right here. He says, written in 1280 B.C., the book, of dead, the book of the Dead describes a god, Horus. Horus is the son of God, Osiris, born to a virgin mother. He was baptized in a river by Anup the baptizer, who was later beheaded. Like Jesus, Horus was tempted while alone in the desert, healed the sick, the blind, cast out demons, and walked on water. He raised Asar from the dead. Asar translates to Lazarus. Oh yeah, he also had 12 disciples. Yes, Horus was crucified first, and after three days, two women announced Horus, the savior of humanity, had been re resurrected. Now, the documentary takes footage from old Jesus movies uh, while playing the Bengal song, Walk Like an Egyptian. Now, it's a heavy scene. You know, I mean, it is thick with sarcasm. 
And you are left with these undertones of thinking like, have, have I been lied to this whole time? Like, what is the explanation for all of this? Is any of this true and how true? And what, what, what does one do with this? So I think it'd be a good idea for us to take a look at, at some of the similarities between Jesus and Oris and, and deconstruct this argument. Uh, the first claim here, uh, Oris being the son of God of, of Osiris, born to a virgin mother. Now, Egyptian mythology explains that Oris had two parents, Osiris and Isis was her name. Osiris is killed by his rival brother, Set, or Seth, and he is the god of the desert. And he kills him, and Osiris' body is dismembered and scattered throughout Egypt and also thrown into the Nile River. Osiris' wife, childless and grief-stricken, uh, she is so distraught, but she, she wants to have a child, so she, she gathers all his limbs and his head and reattaches them somehow, and to make a long story short, um, is able to conceive a son uh, with her husband's corpse. Uh, Osiris does not come back to life exactly. Instead, he becomes the god of the underworld, and their son Oris, in essence, becomes Osiris's replacement and sets new enemy. Again, I, I really think it's important that we examine, deconstruct the argument, um, see if there's a case here. Um, but as you do that, we, we start seeing how this starts losing its bite. For one, let's agree that this is just not a virgin birth story. If you have to bring back your dead husband from the grave, it just does not qualify as a virgin birth story. It's not the story that we see in scripture, where suddenly Isis is discovered with child and an angel comes to her and says, hey, you will name this boy Oris. It's not that at all. It's not even close. I wish I could say more on that, but I'm just going to keep moving. Uh, the second part, he was baptized in the river by Anup the baptizer, who was later beheaded. Well, there is no character named Anup the baptizer in all of Egyptian mythology. Uh, Mar apparently gets this reference from a 19th century English poet, 19th century English poet, um, and an amateur, amateur Egyptologist named Gerald Massey, uh, who wrote a little bit about this stuff. Amateur Egyptologist is me putting it politely, uh, as he had no formal training, and the entire Egyptologist community has largely ignored his work. If anything, it makes more sense that he borrowed from, from the accounts of, of the Gospels and updated his story. Uh, I want to move through this next part a little, a little, uh, a little faster, too. Um, I know I'm really into this, and, and, and part of it is because I'm Egyptian, um, so I just want to get the record straight. <laughs> Picked on the wrong religion, uh, wrong, uh, wrong country, I should say. And religion. Anyway, Christian Egyptian, here we go. So I, I have a post, actually, that, that I, I wrote in, in response to some of this that will go live on our website um, tomorrow. Um, but in short, when it comes to that, that piece about Oris being tempted in the desert, casting out demons, healing people, and like, kind of like this ministry that, is very, that echoes similarities to Jesus and having 12 disciples and a friend named Lazarus, no, Egyptian, uh, no, no, Egypt, uh, no Egyptologist confirms any of this. People who, who have PhDs in Egyptology, people who write books, people who teach at universities, no Egyptologists confirm any of those claims. Like they, they are kind of like rumors on websites and on, on things like these, these forms of documentaries. Um, it's just, it's not good academic research. It's actually not great rhetoric either. But I do want to focus on this part where this, this, this accusation, Oris was crucified first and after three days, Two women announced Oris, the savior of humanity, had, had been resurrected. For the sake of clarification, crucifixion, the way that we describe it, is, uh, it, it has been popularized and brought to perfection really by the Romans. 
And this idea of taking like, you know, these, these two wooden beams and making them into a cross and flogging somebody, making that person carry that cross like, in the way that Jesus, and then nailing that person where, where they would die of asphyxiation to that cross, um, that was not practiced by, by ancient Egyptians. Uh, it was not practiced by anybody really outside of the, out of the Romans. Crucifixion itself is an ancient practice, and it means other different things, like just simply being tied to a tree and being left therefore dead. Um, different societies have, have done that. Um, you can die by asphyxiation, dehydration, or just by the elements. Now, the sources differ, because there's so many different stories in Egypt, Egyptian mythology over the 30 dynasties, and there's not one origin story that guides them all, okay? Sources differ on what actually happened to Oris. Um, so there's a collection of illustrations and artifacts that, that have been pieced together over thousands of years. And some of these pieces have Oris uh, being bit by a scorpion. Um, another, another one has him being poisoned and being re resuscitated or, or brought back to life in some way. But the popular ones don't have him dying at all. Instead, he, he becomes the, the sun god, Ray. And that, that's what the more popular narratives actually, actually do. So there's no... There's no Death. There's no crucifixion in the, in, in the more common narratives of Oris, uh, nor then can there be a resurrection either. Uh, there are some who have speculated, well, technically, he dies you know, every night when, when the sun goes down and is resurrected again. But I think we can agree that that is nothing like the gospel account of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Egyptologists themselves do not take these, these claims seriously and I would just like to set the record straight with that. Now, I, I, I bring this up uh, because this idea of a plagiarized legend was popular in the 18th and 19th century and has also gained some traction today. Uh, and and they, they keep resurfacing. And you probably may, you may know somebody who, who wonders about this or have said this to you in some way. Maybe you've attended a university class. Uh, maybe you've read a book or maybe you've had a conversation with a friend you know, who, who has said something like this. I know I have friends who, who, who take this with, with some grain of, of validity, um, and, and we, we talk about this. Because it's, there's this idea, and, and not so much about Bill Maher and the others, but there's this idea that Christianity is one big scandal, that it's one big reveal away from being found to be untruthful. And if we just pull on those threads just a little bit, you know, it, the whole thing will become unraveled. It's why, like, you know, the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and all these shows, you know, there's always going to be one of these popular shows about, like, is Jesus real or not? You know, CNN just ran a series of them on Sunday nights, right? There's always going to be a Da Vinci Code type of movie that, that says, oh, the, the, the church was out to fool everybody so they could gain influence and wealth and control and so forth. It, there's always somebody, a website or something that is screaming, all of this is one big conspiracy. I read it over here. There's also always going to be news of some type of archaeological discovery saying that they found Jesus' tomb or they found Jesus' wife and his other wife and his children and so forth. They found Jesus' time machine. <laughs> if they do find Jesus' time machine, it, it may just change a, a little bit of, of, of my life. Um, in every circle of friends, there's a person that looks like Jesus in their circle of friends. And, and if there is a time machine, I just may be a little bit nicer to that guy, just in case. <laughs> Just in case. You know that $20 that you owe me? Pay me later, right? But there's, we, there's always like these, these, these types of you know, news and announcements that, that, that threaten the faith in some way or, or claim to. 
But if we can be fair, if we can use our cynicism the other way as well, could we also just consider that there's been a lot of people who have made a lot of money trying to disprove the claims of Jesus. There have been a lot of people who have received PhDs and who have sold millions of books and screenplays and have, have um, received all of this type of attention trying to disprove the claims of Jesus. You can make a very good living trying to reduce Jesus into a legend as well. No one can be completely objective. We all have some element of subjectivity. I know I have some element of subjectivity, and I wish others would come forth with their subjectivity as well. Now, we can go back and forth about this all day, but you know, here's one response, and another writer says this, and another writer says that, and, and I read here, and I saw this over there. Um, but I would love to encourage you to examine these, your, your doubts, and the doubts work differently for everybody. And, and just to kind of give some thought about some of the things uh, that, that we're hearing. But ultimately, I would like to encourage you with this. It's not about finding new data that is going to solve this for us. It is by answering the question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, I'm not a Christian because I'm superstitious or because I need some type of a cosmic being to go to sleep at night. Um, I, I, I want to be a person that is committed to truth and that is committed to, to meaning uh, and, and have intellectual integrity. I also want to be kind and noble to my fellow man, but I don't have time to believe in made-up religions or plagiarized religions or these legends and, and, and pretend to call these things true. I, I, I'm not interested in that. So how did I come to, uh, to, to, to take the historical account of Jesus seriously? Well, to summarize what has been preached uh, before and what others like N.T. Wright and other college professors have said, uh, I, I gravitated towards the, the, the effect of the claims of, of Christianity. But, but first, the claims. The claims are, here we have Jesus, a, a man whose followers claim that he performed signs, wonders, and miracles, gave the greatest teachings ever to, be, to have been heard, claimed to be God, predicted not only his own death, but his own resurrection, then died, then rose from the dead three days later, exactly how he had predicted, appeared to his disciples, then to 500 people, and, and then pockets of other appearances for 40 days after his resurrection. Those are the claims. The question then being, how do we know the disciples didn't make up these claims? How do we know the disciples didn't make up this legend? I mean, can you see this? The disciples grief-stricken after their Messiah had been taken from them and killed they, they're, they're back in that upper room. They're discouraged. They're hurting. They're like, you know, I really thought this was the guy that was going to change everything. I really thought this, is, this was the savior of humanity. And just like that, he's gone. He's dead. He's been taken away from us. One of them decides to encourage the others. Like, you know what? We are going to tell everybody that he's been raised from the dead. We are going to tell everybody um, that, that he appeared to us. And we're going to try to you know, live out his teachings and carry out his teachings and share it. First, we're going to steal the body. And then we're going to commit to each other that we're going to go to the grave with this, this sort of thing. Maybe you can see that. It is really hard to, to figure out how they would have taken the body, uh, especially since the, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers and uh, they, they're never arrested for this. And, 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 and there's a whole piece there that we can't get into right now. But I can imagine some type of made-up story. Maybe you can too. What I can't imagine is what comes next. After the first few disciples have been killed, why would the other disciples continue to, 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 to give this message? 
especially since like, there's no money in this. There's no fame in this. And this is happening over a few decades now. If you're disciple number seven, like on, on the survivor, survivor list type of a thing, and like, you know, the other guys have been dead like for 15 years now, and you know, like it's 15 years into this, and maybe you have moved on. Maybe it's like 15, 20, 20 or so years. You've gotten married, you've had children, maybe there's even a grandchild or two. If somebody stops you in the market and says, hey, you're one of those guys who used to preach that Jesus rose from the dead, right? You're gonna say, what if it's all made up? No, no, that's not me. I have one of these faces that makes people think that, they, that they, you know, you, you recognize me, and you know me, but I'm actually not that guy. I get it all the time. You're going to say that, right? Or the second thing you're going to say is if the person insists, no, it is you. I, I, I have not forgotten. I went to high school with you. I remember you. You know, that, that sort of thing. Then you're going to try your best to get out of it, and you're going to say whatever you need to say to get out of it. You know what? That was like 20 years ago. I don't know about you, but we all say crazy awful, weird things when we're younger. Um, you know, I had made this stupid college bet with my friends, um, and we started saying this. It just kind of got out of hand. I, I, you know, listen, my loyalties are to Caesar and no one else. I do not believe in any of this. I just want to go home and hang out with my family now, right? You're going to say whatever you need to do to get out of that. But you're not going to die for it. You're not going to die for it. My old college professor would say, if you think about it, nobody dies for a lie. The suicide bomber, the kamikaze pilot, the extremist, they are dying for what they believe to be true. Now, I find, of course, the disciples' cause to be much more nobler than, than, than what I just mentioned. But I just want to insist on the point that they are, not, they are not dying for something that they made up. They, in fact, do the opposite. Instead of hiding from it or shrinking from it, they go out and they tell as many people as possible, in the face of all of this danger, that Jesus rose from the dead. They are preaching to as many people as possible. They are traveling and just trying to get the word out. And instead of people contradicting them, there are people who are confirming that story. There's people of like this 500 that was mentioned earlier that are saying, we saw him too. And other people coming forward saying, we saw him too. Write our story down so it can be preserved and shared as well. And the striking thing is, even though they're being beaten and killed and persecuted, the church grows. The church, the church doesn't just survive. It grows. It flourishes. And nothing like that has ever happened since. And when we combine that reaction to the early writings of the New Testament, to the conversion of Paul, like, like here's a guy who comes outside of it and, 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 and has this encounter with Jesus and starts pro professing the same thing. Even, even his half Jesus' half-brother James, I don't know if anybody has uh, you know, a brother who sometimes says weird and questionable things, but the last thing that you do often is you know, collaborate what your brother is saying if you find them to be strange and unusual and if they've been bothering you your whole life, right? But James becomes convinced that his half-brother really is the Son of God, and, and that is a very striking testimony. I wish I could say more about this, but coming to grips with all of this, that was my aha moment in my college years. That is what moved me from being suspicious or skeptical about this and, and wondering if this is, is, is this possibly a legend or is this historically viable? And what I learned from that by examining these doubts is this. While it is good for our intellectual integrity to consider if all of this is a legend, there really is good reason to believe in the historicity of Jesus. I mean, it's good for us to seek intellectual integrity, but there is really good reason to believe in the historicity of Jesus. 
This forced me to say, if there really is a God who became one of us so that we can be given salvation, who, who predicted his death and then came back to life again and said, you too will be raised back to life with a glorified body if you also believe. If that is true, then that changes everything. That moves it from a story and from a myth to something that is life-altering and life-transforming, if it is true. I and mean, how can you ignore somebody coming back from the dead, inviting you to, to receive the same type of life? That's my story. You have your own story. Like I said earlier, you know, we, all we all have different types of doubts. And they fit across some of the different categories that have been mentioned earlier. Uh, this message was focused on the intellectual doubt. Uh, whether or not the story of Jesus is legendary or does it have historical validity. And if you'd like to read more for yourself, I recommend these titles. Uh, and we'll, be, we'll post them on our blog as well. And, and if any of this has resonated with you, uh, and you want to talk to a pastor, or, or if, if this has also frustrated you, and you still want to talk to a pastor, um, I would love to volunteer myself. I would love to have this conversation. Uh, not to talk you into it, but just to receive it and, and to be a part of conversation. You can email me at tgalley at grace.org. Um, I'd love to sit down. Uh, feel free to contact your campus pastor, and if you have another pastor on, on this staff uh, that you feel a connection with, reach out to them. Uh, we, we like that the church is a safe place to have these types of conversations, a safe place to process doubt, a safe place to have meaningful conversations. Ultimately, this really series is, is that asks this question, can people believe this stuff, is asking a volitional doubt question. Can we really believe this? And so for the next four weeks, we invite you back uh, to, to maybe unpack some of the other questions that concern Jesus. And that emotional doubt, where what the what ifs, and the why gods, you know, they work a little bit differently. And, and certainly sermons and books and resources, they play a really important role uh, with all of this, but great help is going to be found in community. And so I want to encourage you to, to join maybe a life community group and talk, to, with, talk with other Christians who have tried to process their doubt and, and, and see how, how, listen to their stories and, and their journeys. Maybe attend one of our alpha courses, uh, alpha classes, uh, that invite you to ask all the questions that you want about the claims of, of the Bible and about Jesus. And as mentioned earlier, next week our January Joel classes will, will begin. There are some really great offerings in that. And for those of you who, you know, maybe the, the doubt piece isn't really that significant to you. Uh, you feel more compelled by sharing your faith more lovingly and, and, and more, more, more effectively. There's a really great class that's starting called Sharing Jesus with Your Friends uh, and that is at all of our camp uh, at Lexington, uh, Watertown, and Wilmington. For those of you who still have serious reservations about the Christian faith, again, we welcome you, and we really are glad that you're here. Of course, we do hope that you find faith in Christ, but it's not because we want the numbers or the members or, or the customers, if you will. We want people to find faith in Jesus because it's the best thing that we know. We want people to experience this beautiful hope of salvation rooted in this unconditional love, this amazing grace, and this merciful forgiveness. It's the best thing that we can wish upon another. But we're glad that you're here. We all get to ask ourselves the question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And so friends, as we bring as we enter into this new year, 2016, and we have these 20,000 daily thoughts. By the end of the year, we're going to have seven and a half million thoughts. 
May we give Jesus the adequate attention that his question deserves. What about you? Who do you say that I am? As for me, I have the same answer as Peter. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And I'm grateful to be considered among them. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for your love and for your goodness. We are grateful for your hope. We are grateful for the conversations that have guided us along the way. Uh, we are grateful for old college professors, Lord, and dear friends and, and church communities uh, that, that have helped us piece so much of this together. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would still help us with, with the, the hope and the truth and the meaning that we are processing. Be with us, Lord, in these days. Give us strength and peace. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.